I'm Tavis Smiley. And, uh, oh, I see what you did there, Miles. I see what you did there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I see what you did there. Uh, we're about to have a conversation in this hour about a book called Seeing Others. And if you hear the lyrics to the song, um, you'll see why Miles, my board, I've chose that song. He, he thinks he's cute. Um, <laughs> anyway, the book is called Seeing Others, How Recognition Works and How It Can Heal a Divided World by Michelle Lamont. Uh, that's the text we're discussing in this hour. Again, you see why Miles chose that particular track to sort of weave into this dialogue. Uh, and so in this hour, um, a conversation about redefining. Uh, actually, let me back up. A conversation really about the ways in which we are viewed and valued. We were just talking to Valerie Mosley moments ago. Uh, about improving your net worth and your self-worth and how your mindset is an asset. We're talking specifically about money in that last hour. Uh, but uh, I love the way that Valerie approaches it in terms of mindset. Uh, and so many of us uh, find ourselves struggling financially uh, and otherwise, in part because of a mindset. So we were literally just talking uh, about uh, net worth and self-worth and the link between those two things. So here comes Michelle Lamont in this hour. With her new book, Seeing Others, How Recognition Works and How It Can Heal a Divided World. So a conversation we're about to have right now about the ways in which we are viewed and valued, about redefining who we collectively see as worthy in our society and how we can create new narratives which can lead um, to more people feeling the respect and the dignity that their humanity deserves. I am pleased to be joined right now by a Harvard uh, professor, esteemed Harvard professor, and author Michelle Lamont. Her new book, once again, is called Seeing Others, How Recognition Works and How It Can Heal a Divided World. Uh, Michelle Lamont, good to have you on this program. How are you today, Professor? Very well, and thank you for my having me. I'm really delighted to it's, talk with you. No, I'm delighted to have you on. It's a uh, it's it's great um, great having you here. Um, let me just let me let me start broad, and we'll, we'll narrow our way um, as we move through this hour. And let me just say at the outset that the timing of this conversation, the timing of this book, um, is really propitious. I I, I know how books work. Uh, I've written a few books in my life, and I know that um, when you when you write one and the publisher gets the manuscript and it goes through the, all the production process, one never really knows what the state of the world is going to be. And you know where I'm, you, you know where I'm going here, obviously, don't you? You know exactly yeah, where I'm going. What, one never really knows what the state of the world is going to be when that book publishes, when it drops. Uh, who knows uh, what that book is dropping you into? But here you come now at a moment such as this about seeing other people and how recognition works and how it can heal a divided world. So the timing could not be more propitious. Let me start with this big question, this broad question. Again, as I said, we'll narrow through the hour. When you talk about seeing others, um, you mean by that exactly what? Well, it's really about who's valued and who's invisible, who's in the background and being underestimated, and who are the groups that always have sh light shined on them. Mm -hmm. So the goal is really to, to lift up the groups who are invisible so that basically more people feel like they matter and they feel they have full cultural membership in our society that they truly belong. Mm -hmm. But that's happening not just at the individual level. There's a lot that we can do to create societies that are more empowering for more people. And the specific approach I use is really to transform the narrative, the stories we tell about each other. And 
I um, do this by interviewing a 185 change agent whose job it is to to produce new narratives, basically. Mm-hmm. So that's the short of it. Yep. Well, um, uh, I'm glad we have an hour, so you ain't got to be too short. We got a whole hour here, <laughs> so we ain't got, <laughs> this this is not one of those one of those three or four minute uh, interviews. We got yeah, we got time yeah, here, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we ain't yeah. got to be we ain't got to be too short. That that said, though, I appreciate I appreciate that response as a start as a start to this dialogue. Um, but let me let me take a little step further though. Um, why is it that certain individuals, certain groups, uh, collectives, as, as, as you put it, why is it that certain people are, in fact, in the world, in society, rendered invisible in the first place? Well, there are so many possible answers to your question, but I'll connect directly with your introduction where you talked about the net worth of mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. and their broader worth. So mm-hmm. one of the key arguments of the book is that at this current moment, the uh, college degree in American society operates more or less like a caste system. Mm. And people who are judged not successful, who don't have a college degree, who don't, who are not professionals and managers, are increasingly, you know, through the media, through, for instance, the popular entertainment that we have uh, streaming in our living room are constantly viewed as buffoons or clowns or people who are not self-reliant. So I argue that with since, you know, the Reagan era where we have a, a narrative about who's valued that has really crystallized and this has to do with, you know, people who are competitive or trying to be successful in, in economic terms. And uh, we need to move away from this model because it just condemns a large segment of our society, uh, more than 50% of the people who don't have a college degree, to be viewed as unworthy. And I think that really feeds huge crisis in uh, mental health and also uh, the, you know, opioid epidemic, the, uh, the this death by despair that so much has been written about over the last uh, few years. And we need to move toward a more multi-dimensional, plural way of understanding who matters. So I think for the professionals, it's not hard to think that their status, their net worth or their social status is their worth, because these two Mm. things go hand in hand. But when it comes to working class people, I wrote a book several years ago titled The Dignity of Working Man. It's all about disentangling these two things. Many workers think of themselves as very worthy but not because of how much money they make or what degrees they have, but because of who they are as a person, mm. how much they are there standing by their friends when their friends are in trouble, trying to be good parents, you know, do the right thing for themselves and for others. And they often look down at the upper middle class who they see as too self-interested and egotistic and power-driven, if you will. So the book is really a general reflection on how, where do those stories that we tell ourselves about who's worthy and who's less worthy, Mm -hmm. where these stories come from, how can they be changed most importantly? And these 185 interviews I've already mentioned are by, you know, people, stand-up comics, people like Kamau Bell or, you know, Hollywood creative like Mike Sure, who created the show The Good Place and Park and Recreation, all the, or the guy who produced uh, Handmaid's Tale. All these people are putting out new stories that mm. we all register about who's worthy and the, who's not. No, there, there's, there are some great interviews, and we'll tell you more about some people that she talked to um, for this book about seeing others and how recognition works, how it can heal a divided world. Just getting started, really, in this hour with Michelle Lamont. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. 
For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like freedom. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. Our guest is our Harvard professor, Michelle Lamont. Her new book is called Seeing Others, How Recognition Works and How It Can Heal a Divided World. Um, we've already established in this conversation so far uh, this notion that too many individuals, too many groups of people in this country and in this world uh, have been, are in fact, rendered invisible. Uh, and um, the question is, what do we do about that? Um, too many people think they are unworthy uh, for a variety of reasons. And um, she has talked to a lot of people uh, in the writing of, um, of of this text to get a better sense of what it means to actually see others. Um, we, we can talk about some of the names a little bit later that you uh, of the kind of the persons that you talk to. Uh, you talk to a, a pretty a pretty amazing group. What were you hoping to get from these people um, in terms of understanding uh, a better way for us to see and value each other? Well, I decided to write this book during the Trump era because the Trump presidency. I was very depressed mm-hmm. and I was looking for hope. So I figured, you know, let's try to figure out what the social scientists tell us about where hope comes from. And what I learned reading that literature is that essentially uh, what you need to get hope is be able to imagine an alternative future. And that is done through narratives. You know, what what are the stories that we tell each other about what the possible future is like? So I reached out to people who operate in different sectors of society. Some of them work in advocacy, others are, you know, in the policy world, others are artists, to see what are the alternative visions of the world that they are proposing to us. And I found that in general, they think the American dream is a joke, the American dream is dead. Mm. Uh, For With growing inequality, it has become out of reach for most people. And instead of a world organized around consumption, which is frankly destroying our environment, you know, port mobility, uh, many of them are promoting a different way of thinking about the future of our society, which really puts a lot of emphasis on inclusion and um, also on authenticity, living our life by putting our best, best self out there as opposed to pretending that we're something that we're not. And the book also draws on 80 interviews with uh, Gen Zs who are young people born after 97. And we interviewed uh, those young people. Uh, I didn't do the interview myself because they don't want to talk to boomers. But I had two graduate <laughs> students who, uh, it's true, yeah. I had two graduate students who interviewed people who go to 32 different colleges in the Northeast and the, the, the Midwest to see how they understand today's problems and what kind of world they would want to live in. And they also very much emphasize wanting a society that is far more inclusive. And we see that not only in their massive involvement in the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020. Our interviews were done in 2019 and 2020 before entering the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. But we also see that in the push they gave, you know, against sexual harassment, but also the question of the pronouns, mm-hmm. like, you know, people who don't want to have binary sex, sexual identity, and they, it's very important to them that we use, you know, not only she and he, but also them or the, the non-binary restroom. These questions may seem totally ridiculous to a lot of boomers, and they don't just understand, and they think a lot of Gen Zs are just snowflakes 
who are too self-centered. But mm-hmm. in fact, for them, since many of them are pushing for a more inclusive society, these questions are really crucial for them. It gives them hope. You know, it's the world they want to create together. So we have to pay attention mm. uh, and not dismiss what they have to say. You said a few things there, and I didn't want to interrupt. Um, but let me go back now and, and interrogate uh, a few things that you've uh, put out uh, already. Um, let me let me just ask one, if you can um, share a bit more. We're talking about seeing others. Uh, how recognition of others works and how it can heal a divided world. Um, but you had an indictment a moment ago, at least is a quick indictment of of the uh, of, of consumption uh, and what it's doing to our world and what it's doing to us as humans who occupy the space. Uh, I wonder if you might say a bit more about your indictment of consumption. Well, that is very much voiced by the Gen Zs we interviewed because they really feel that, you know, the Gen X and the boomers, my generation essentially, we really screwed up, you know, with the idea of everyone should have a big car and also the lawns, we cut down the trees, you know, and organizing our life around consuming a lot of goods that will, you know, fill our environment with with garbage. Mm-hmm. So they, they call, they talk about, they call it, you know, the, uh, it's a little bit like the treadmill of consumption, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't give you happiness. Today you buy a dress, tomorrow you buy shoes and you still feel empty. Mm-hmm. And instead, we really need to think in terms of being seen by others and feeling that we matter. Mm. You know, we matter to each other. And that's something that human beings, only human beings can do for each other, you yeah. know. So the book is, that's why the book is really organized around how can we broaden recognition for everybody. Yeah. And also that implies, you know, reducing stigma. So for African Americans, like the book has a section where I discuss People with HIV AIDS, when the AIDS crisis started in 1983, in early 1980s, everyone was freaked out. We thought, okay, this is, we can get it by touching the button of an elevator. Mm -hmm. It was a little bit like the beginning of COVID. And then we learned that, no, you know, and the, the stigmatization of and it was also, it came to be dissociated from, you know, pro- sexual promiscuity among gay people. So this study also compares the destigmatization. How is it that people with HIV AIDS stop being stigmatized, whereas people with obesity remain to this day deeply stigmatized? Why did it happen for one group and not the other? Is one of the questions I examine. Mm. Let me. It occurs to me as you. The more you talk, the more questions are running through my head. I'm, I'm trying to keep up with you as we move through this hour. Yeah. But you keep dropping all these jewels and these gems. Let, let me just let me slow down for a second and just ask you, um, since we're talking about seeing others and the value uh, that comes uh, to our lives when we are viewed, what is it that makes people feel like they matter, like they're being mm-hmm. seen? Well, I think one of the things that get most in the way, if you think about how parents raise their kids, if you spend your life protecting your kids from having contact with people who are not like you, like upper middle class parents trying to, you know, give a lot of advantages to their kids by putting them in the best schools in the most exclusive neighborhood, you know, managing their social life so that they never in contact with people of color, let's say. You tell them you just have to be, um, you know, hanging out with people like you in order for you to be valuable. Mm -hmm. And that sends a very wrong message because the kids think if it's connected to meritocracy, for instance, or to college performance, they think I won't be loved unless I fill this stereotype. Mm. And I think the alternative approach is really to let people 
embrace them for who they are and let them live authentically what it means for them to be who they think they are. And, you know, this is this process of recognition of defining others as valuable rather than stigmatized. So, mm. and as I said, this is something that only human beings can do for each other. You know, computers will never do that for us. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the other things you said, again, that I want to uh, uh, give you a chance to unpack, and I, I never quite thought about it this way. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not naive here, but I, when I, when you hear the word caste, of course, there are certain, there are certain uh, cultures, mm-hmm. there are certain countries, there are certain, uh, a certain uh, frameworks that one thinks about when one hears the phrase caste system. Um, I never quite thought about it in the way you laid it out earlier, which is that in this country we have our own caste system. And mm-hmm. that caste system for many people is built around whether or not you are a college educated person. And mm-hmm. I, I, I sort of I sort of chuckled to myself when you said that, because to my mind, uh, while it is better to have one than to not have one, a college degree, pardon my English, ain't what it used to be anyway. Mm-hmm. And I, I just yeah. find it sort of laughable that we have a caste system built in this country around whether or not you got a college degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's a fact to the extent that the the how much people get paid for different kinds of jobs mm-hmm. has really not kept up with productivity. So a lot of working class jobs have increased enormously in the level of productivity they have. Yet the you know the relationship between how well people are paid and the cost of living has really deteriorated. But that's not true for the college educated. Mm-hmm. So basically, everyone is screwed except people who have a college degree. And people who have a college degree typically were able to get into the real estate market earlier. And this is you know, pardon my French, people can sit on their butt and the value of their real estate increases. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have that, instead of having the increased value of your investment, all you have is growing inflation, which makes it much easier for the non-college degree people to to keep up, you Mm -hmm. know. So there's so many, this is just one example among many where the college educated have seen an accumulation of advantages over the last a few decades, whereas those who don't have it have seen a deterioration of their situation. Yep. Um, again, I'm just trying to just go back to cover these things that, that you that you that you uh, uh, spit out that I want to give a chance to, to, to unpack a bit more. Um, I heard you mention Ronald Reagan. You mentioned the Reagan era. And again, I sort of laughed at mm-hmm. myself because as time goes on, two things happen. Number one, there are people listening right now who weren't even around or certainly weren't aware <laughs> Or weren't connected politically during the Reagan era, so it's yeah. worth it's worth unpacking that number one uh, for that sure. reason. But it's also worth going back to that because since uh, you know, since Reagan's presidency, there are many ways in our culture that Ronald Reagan has been lionized uh, mm-hmm. and made to be a, a conservative icon and a hero and etc. Yeah. etc. Et and so when, when you when you were speaking earlier. You talked about this notion of rendering more of our fellow citizens invisible. Um, you talked mm-hmm. about the ways in which that got worse during the Reagan era. So let me give you a minute mm-hmm. to go back and sort of unpack that for those who don't remember what happened during the Reagan era. Sure, sure. I totally understand. You know, I was I was 20 when or 25 when Reagan was in power. So right. I understand many of your listeners were not alive then. But, you know, what he stood for, like something called trickle-down economics, mm-hmm. the idea is you make the, the rich richer, 
and then the the crumbs will will fall and uh, enrich the rest of the population. So the engine of the economy was all about to be, you know, well, let may let's encourage rich people to invest their money, and that will generate more jobs. But in fact, that didn't work at all because it created growing inequality. Mm-hmm. And him, together with the person who was in power in the United Kingdom at the same time, Margaret Thatcher, they really pushed for a new ideology and economic system called neoliberalism, mm-hmm. where basically the the role of the state, the government, was just to make rich people richer. And they were very anti-welfare. They really tightened the rules by which people, low-income people, who often, frankly, they might, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why people are low-income. It might be because they don't have a lot of education or because they've had challenges after challenge. You know, my kids, they grew up in the middle-class neighborhood. They have access to great school. They have two parents with the college degree, PhDs, you know, so they are on an escalator. And if you believe in meritocracy, you think people get what they deserve. Mm -hmm. But the problem with this ideology of meritocracy is it really ignores how some people start with a huge advantage because of who their parents are, you know? Mm-hmm. So this neoliberal ideology in some ways rests on an enormous lie, and it has become, over the last 40 years, since the early 80s when, when Reagan was in power, it has really come to consolidate what a lot of people come to think that's how society works. So low-income people are much more likely to blame themselves about their situation in life than uh, they were uh, 50 years ago. And, um, you know, to believe in meritocracy, which is a defeating strategy, self-defeating strategy, if you don't have a college degree, Mm -hmm. because then it's easy to blame yourself as opposed to say, well, you know, those who succeed in this system are those who are born with a lot of advantages. There are a lot of other ways that I could describe this to you, but that's one of them. No, this conversation is getting richer than I even um, hoped or thought it would be. I knew it would be good, but it's getting (laughs) richer by the the minute. Our guest in this hour is Michelle Lamont, uh, esteemed Harvard professor. Her new book that everybody's talking about is called Seeing Others, How Recognition Works and How It Can Heal a Divided World. When we come forward, um, so much more to unpack that she's already sort of put out there, uh, including this notion of how and why so many Many of us, even today, uh, regard and see our social status uh, as our worth. Um, uh, and that, that's troubling for me in a, in a variety of ways that too many of us um, uh, are so enamored by our social status. Uh, and we see our social status as uh, akin to whatever worth it is that we, we have in this society. And then she raised this issue earlier uh, about death by despair. So many people um uh, are dying uh, in in despair, and too many people, as I said earlier, she said earlier, are being rendered invisible. Uh, my view is that it is a telling of truth that allows the suffering to speak. And if nobody tells the truth, then the suffering uh, and the suffering people uh, end up rendered invisible. A lot more to interrogate as we move through this hour. The book is called Seeing Others. The author is Michelle Lamont. You are listening to her right now on Tavis Smiley. From the Merck Park with love, love, love this love. is Tavis Smiley. <laughs> He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. More of Tavis Smiley in dialogue with Harvard uh, professor Michelle Lamont. Her book is called Seeing Others, How Recognition Works and How It Can Heal a Divided World. We'll get to that last part. Uh, about healing a divided world later in this conversation. I'm still just trying to unpack uh, some of the uh, some of the text 
uh, to give you a better sense of what you're going to read when you get inside of it. Once again, it's called Seeing Others, How Recognition Works and How It Can Heal a Divided World. Let me come right to three or four things I want to get to right quick, Professor Lamont, if I can. Um, one, uh, again, no naivete here either, but we've always lived in a world where people um, equate their social status with their self-worth. But as I read your text uh, and as I hear this conversation, there are more and more everyday people who are starting to indict that particular frame. Absolutely. And that also varies cross-nationally in a sense that in a society like American society, with through the notion of the American dream, we've really enshrined and celebrated upward mobility the workers are in some ways more under the uh, the influence of the, you know, admiration of socioeconomic success. And one of my book is a comparison of French and American workers. And I saw that French workers, I'm not French, by the way, I'm Canadian. So mm-hmm. I study both societies as an outsider. But in France, the workers are far more skeptical toward the successful people, and they're far more critical of them. They don't think necessarily that there are people who are worthy of admiration. So in some ways, I think the American workers end up being a little bit the prisoner of the American dream because it, there's no like widely available alternative that would help them feel very worthy. Although things have changed since Black Lives Matter, I think, because it was such a powerful moment mm-hmm. in favor of social justice. So the current wave of unionization and the various victories that union workers are experiencing, often what they're asking for is not only money, of course, money is extremely important, but requests like the UPS strike, you know, the, the truckers wanted to have air conditioning in their uh, cabin or at Amazon, the workers wanted to have restroom break, you know. So these things, they're not only about quality of life, they're also about dignity and wanting to be treated as worthy people uh, by their employers. And, you know, the examples are multiple. The UAW strike, the auto worker strike, I mean, there was massive mobilization in part because people felt it wasn't fair that those uh, automobile producers had been bailed out by the government. And now that they were doing well financially, they were not redistributing resources to Mm. and increasing the pay of the workers. So I think, you know, the current moment is a very positive one, I think, because uh, Black Lives Matter, there's a lot of young service workers, people Mm -hmm. of color who were involved in these mobilization, and they are now at work in various places like Amazon, and they're pushing for more justice in their workplace. So I'm optimistic about the current moment, frankly. Since the book is called Seeing Others, and given what you just laid out, I wonder if I could just ask you expressly what you would say to employers in this country about seeing others, namely seeing their employees. Well, there are new studies that show that if employees give their workers a little bit more flexibility when it comes to taking time off to bring to the doctor their elderly mother or to go to their kid's school, if the employer treats their worker as full human beings, not only as production machine, but also as as human beings, it it means that the workers will show more loyalty toward their employers. There will be less turnover. Mm. The employers won't have to constantly look for new workers. So really, to create a good workplace, they should not only, you know, increase diversity. It's not just a question of adding bodies, you know, creating a more diverse workforce. It's also very much about 
treating your workers as, uh, you know, three-dimensional human beings who also have a life and help them uh, have a good life so that uh, then you just have, you know, more stability in your workforce and you increase inclusion for everyone, not only people of color or not only women. So mm. I think that's the solution. Um, you mentioned earlier in this conversation, again, I'm just trying to uh, check off the list of things here that I wanted to follow up on that you've laid out already um, before I go forward. Um, you, you, you made this notion, raised this notion early of death by despair. And every one mm-hmm. of us, I suspect, knows somebody, um, someone mm-hmm. who we have seen uh, essentially die in despair. Uh, mm-hmm. But there, but there's quite frankly nothing sadder for me than this notion of death by despair when yeah. those persons just felt invisible, when they felt like they didn't yeah. matter, when they felt like um, their their self worth um, just was non non existent, and 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 sometimes that leads to suicide, and sometimes it just leads to mm-hmm. people just you know being the walking dead and sort of fading out. But but yeah. but but what yeah. say you about this notion? If we're talking about really seeing each other, if we're talking about the ways that we're we're viewed and we're valued, how is it that we can live mm-hmm. in a society where too many fellow citizens end up dying in despair or mm-hmm. by despair? Mm-hmm. Well, this this expression "dead by despair" is the title of the book by two economists, mm-hmm. Adam Case and Angus Deaton. And what they show in their book is that basically, as the working class has lost in American society and also the lower middle class, a lot of people have had, you know, if working class men cannot be providers anymore, it's much harder for them to, like, join associations, go to church, Mm -hmm. find a woman or a partner with whom they'll have children, and they tend to isolate themselves. And it has really fed substance abuse, you know, the the opioid epidemic, the, the number of suicides, people, the number of alcoholics that we have in our society now. So in other words, the price we pay for growing inequality is also the fact that the great many people don't find in themselves the, the, the desire to live anymore, and they find ways to become extremely self-destructive. Mm. So, um, you know, the solution, I think, is is not only to create a society that distributes its resources more broadly, but also to to fight against the stigmatization of people. Uh, people get depressed or discouraged for all yeah. kinds of reasons that often have to do with people underestimating them, not having faith in them, you know? So, of course, there's the stigma and the racism that African-Americans experience. So mm-hmm. one of the things that epidemiologists uh, write about, those are people who are experts in population health, they write about the wear and tear of everyday life, the mm-hmm. experience of inequality that gets under the skin and which translates into major um, racial differences in health outcomes. So, for instance, incidents of, uh, you know, not only mental health problems, but also cardiac incidents or uh, the, uh, they call it allostatic load, the, the stress that gets mm-hmm. under your skin that has a long-term negative impact on your health. So yes. it's really serious in terms of how much money we spend, not only that, but what kind of society we create if we're not able to, to deal with the, the growing homeless population in L.A. or in San Francisco or in Philadelphia. The collective quality of life is just extremely negative not only for the poor people who are having you know terrible life condition but for everyone because if we live with other human beings that are being dehumanized on a daily basis 
in front of our eyes, you know, it's difficult to for collective well-being to prosper. It's impossible. Yeah. When we come forward, um, I want to see if I can weave two notables uh, together, at least what they've said. Um, Dr. King uh, once famously said um, that you cannot legislate morality, not just once. He said it more than once, but uh, he's right that you can't legislate morality. Uh, The great singer Bonnie Raitt put it this way. I can't make you love me if you don't. I can't make your heart feel something that it won't. Um, That's my way of, of pushing toward this question of how we convince since we can't compel, can't make them. How do we convince people to see other people. How do I convince you? How do I com- c- compel you to the extent I can to see my humanity, to, to, to see my dignity? It's one thing to say seeing others, but how does one go about doing that? And moreover, how then does seeing each other, how does that recognition help heal a divided world more when we come forward with the author of the book, Seeing Others, Michelle Lamont on Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically blind. Black, black. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Smiley. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned into Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Professor Lamont, not sure if the, if that frame I offered a moment ago makes sense, but I quoted Dr. King, who once said, "You can't legislate morality." And again, the great singer Bonnie Wright said, I, uh, "Bonnie Raitt said, I can't make you love me if you don't. I can't make your heart feel something that it won't." And so the question is, how do we convince? How do we compel others? to see others. Mm-hmm. Well, the what I put my money on in the book is the transformation of narratives. So earlier I mentioned how people with HIV AIDS were deeply stigmatized at the beginning of the AIDS crisis, mm-hmm. but today they're not anymore. And that's, so that's a very successful case of transforming the meaning that's associated with this group. During the same time period, People who are obese remain deeply, deeply stigmatized. So in one of my paper, we draw on various studies to really document how this happened. Mm -hmm. Drawing, for instance, on a book by Abigail Segi titled What's Wrong with Fat? And we show that what really made the difference is that for people with HIV AIDS, there was a deep connection between the people involved in social movements, not only the leaders, but the participants as well, and knowledge workers like legal experts, medical experts, journalists, social scientists who said about HIV AIDS, it's not their fault. They're not getting it because they're gay people engaging in promiscuity. Anyone can get AIDS. And then you had people like Magic Johnson who came out and said, I have AIDS, tall, black, you know, healthy mm-hmm. athlete. And then you had Lady Di who showed up, removed her glove and was shaking the hands of people like AIDS, so really important, iconic people who showed by example. And in the con- in contrast, the case of um, people who are obese, the medical association really opposed this notion of healthy at any way. They maintain many of them maintained that the BMI was really important, and that you know, whereas now. Right now, things are changing. There's greater acknowledgement of the importance of genetics. Mm -hmm. So it's not that people who are fat are lazy or they don't take care of themselves. It's also there's a lot of other factors. that. So the takeaway here is it's true that you cannot force someone to love you. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if in our environment we surround ourselves, with stories about these various groups that are stigmatized, that provide alternative explanation, like why are low-income people poor? 
Is it because they're lazy or is it because uh, they have uh, structural inequality? There's a lot of deficits that they experience at school because they don't have access to the best school, etc. You mm-hmm. know, so we can provide many answers about the groups that are most stigmatized, why they are like this. And if we change the narrative, it really helps with acceptance. Mm-hmm. And similarly, I'll, I'll end with, I know this is a long answer, but one example is I study uh, an African-American uh, artist who created a video titled Question Bridge. Your listeners can Google it on YouTube. And that for that, he interviewed 150 black men across the U.S. And he asked them, uh, what's your experience about being a black man? And he found the only thing all these men have in common is the experience of the stereotype and the mm-hmm. discrimination that black men experience. But mm-hmm. what he did also is that they created an association with the Black uh, Men Achievement Organization, and they used this video and showed it in a great many community centers and high schools to create conversation about the negative stereotypes about Black men to really create social change by exposing people to the question, you know? Right. Men, but people of all colors. And this is creating a social change through narratives. And that's exactly what my book is about. So it's true, you cannot force someone to like you. But on the other hand, you can tell other stories about why people have the experiences they have. And some stories are more stigmatizing than others. And like, it helps people to understand, to walk in other people's shoes, if you will. Nope, I understand that. I receive it. Our remaining moments with Michelle Lamont when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. I've only got two and a half minutes left here with uh, Professor Michelle Lamont of Harvard. Her book is called Seeing Others, How Recognition Works and How It Can Heal a Divided World. I've got all kind of responses uh, if I had time to read them all, um, much less take calls. But, uh, Professor, let me close with this note. I want to frame this last question this way, if I can, uh, by reading something from a listener. Uh, Tavis, uh, the same young people that Professor Lamont speaks of are the ones speaking out today against their employees, against Congress, And they're the ones pushing this issue, as they should, of a ceasefire in the Middle East. I raise that, Professor, not to make you political, but to the point you made earlier, and your research bears this out in the book, that this generation of people, this this generation of young people are speaking out in a variety of ways, uh, and they're letting themselves be heard on a variety of issues, including what's happening in the Middle East right now, which leads me to offer this as the exit question. How then, no matter where we are in the world, how can seeing the other heal our divided world? Well, I think the case of Israel, you know, of course, it's dangerous these days to talk about this because you get canceled one way or the other. But I personally am convinced that one of the solutions that will help us out of this disaster is to really register that suffering is suffering, no matter on what side of the divide you find yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, you cannot say, okay, it's fine for Israeli children to suffer, and it's it's, we're going to ignore what's happening with Palestinians. So... The book very much focuses on what I call ordinary universalism, what we all have in common Mm -hmm. as human beings. You know, this is absolutely crucial. And I think uh, we should not engage in competition about who studies, who who suffers most, because um, whether we're talking about, you know, Native Americans and African Americans in this country, you know, we have to register that dignity is crucial for everyone, uh, no matter what kind of... uh, suffering you're facing. And that sometimes can be very difficult. For instance, some people may have very little sympathy toward 
white working class men who've experienced downward mobility and who turn toward white nationalism and racism mm. as a way to live themselves. So how do you how can you show sympathy toward these people if you're a victim of their racism? It's yeah. very difficult. And that, yet dignity, you know, dignity is something that we can all have. It's not like a pie where if I get the piece, you don't get right. one. That's right. Dignity is uh, it, it is and ought to be uh, non-negotiable. Uh, and you're right. It ain't like a piece of pie. My dignity does not diminish yours and vice versa. I love that phrase, ordinary universalism, uh, otherwise known as what we have in common. Uh, that's the word of the day. The book is called Seeing Others. How Recognition Works and How It Can Heal a Divided World. The author is the esteemed Harvard professor, Michelle Lamont. Professor Lamont, thank you for this work. Thank you for your witness. Thank you for this conversation. I've enjoyed this immensely. All the best to you.